Morning, everyone. I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Acts 1, 1 through 11. It's a longer one, so bear with me. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them, after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you fixed by his own authority, but you will receive and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and all Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, in cloud, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go unto heaven. got a full house today and for good reason those potlucks really bring out the numbers don't they <laughs> the Warren Christian Apologetics Center exists to affirm and defend the Christian worldview while challenging the growing global influence of atheistic thought the center's work includes the availability of venues whereby respected scholars from various disciplines, in some fashion supportive of the Christian worldview, are engaged for presentations that make contributions of varying degrees to the overall field of apologetics or Christian evidences. We have with us today a special guest, Dr. Noby Stone. And Dr. Stone is one such contributor to the Christian worldview. He is so for a couple of reasons. First of all, professionally, Dr. Stone has over 45 years or over 40 years, nearly 45, in scientific exploration and space exploration and has achieved the highest degree of credential in his fields. Uh, Dr. Stone is the former space flight scientist at the Marshall Space Flight Center. And uh, he will be giving a, a special presentation today at 1 o'clock concerning matters of science and faith, and also again at 6 p.m. this evening, uh, which we highly anticipate. And Dr. Stone uh, is credentialed to speak about such matters. He's flown on uh, science experiments on eight space missions and served as mission scientist for the STS-46 and STS-75 space shuttle missions. He has refereed a number of scientific journals and has authored over 150 science and technical publications and has served on the staff of the Graduate School at the University of Alabama Huntsville. And most recently, Dr. Stone has authored uh, the book Genesis 1 and Lessons from Space. This morning, however, during our worship service, we preach the gospel, we preach Christ and Him crucified, and Dr. Stone is 
more than qualified to do that as well. And that's one of the things we appreciate about him. He and his wife, Margaret, have traveled together to us today. She is with us. Uh, they come on high recommendation as Christians. I've heard much about their service. Dr. Stone has taught uh, adult Bible classes and probably some others over uh, this, this same 40 to 45 year period. Uh, and primarily in his home congregation, at their home congregation in Huntsville, the Mayfair Church of Christ, one of the largest congregations in the South. Now, Dr. Stone will be speaking about uh, lessons from space in Genesis 1 at 1 o'clock, and at 6 p.m. tonight, he'll deal with the question of whether faith and reason uh, are compatible, faith and scientific exploration or observations. He'll deal with that tonight. This morning in Bible class, he dealt with the need for faith and the consequences of unbelief. But this morning, uh, he's going to present to us the effects of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want you to um, focus on the gospel aspect this morning of his presentation, and we'll delve into scientific matters later on in the day. It's a full house. Uh, our acoustics are good in here for singing, but if you have children and they get a little restless, our guest speaker is a little soft-spoken, and it's a good day to probably use the nursery, uh, feel free to do that. Uh, there's attendees out there, and uh, let's try to uh, give our utmost attention to Dr. Stone then as he, is, as he speaks on this vital subject. Thank you, Matt. I, I'm going to have to correct one thing. I did not fly in space. My experiments flew in space, but I stayed firmly on the ground. <laughs> the little lady in the back told me that if I went into space that I would be a single man when I got back. <laughs> God has revealed Himself to mankind in three ways that are still available to us today through the creation that we can observe, through His inspired Word, and through His visitation among us in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. And the proof of Jesus of Nazareth and who He was when He was here in the flesh rests finally, primarily, in the resurrection. So I want to look at the resurrection today because Jesus placed the total credibility of Himself and the success of His mission on earth on this one fact, His resurrection from the dead on the third day. <clears throat> on the resurrection, Christianity stands or falls, and the church has its basis. I want to look at two effects of the resurrection today that I think show that it is a real historical event. The transformation of the twelve disciples, the apostles, and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. First, the apostles. In order to understand a transformation, we must first understand what the apostles were before in order to understand what they transformed to afterwards. 
So I want to look at their understanding of various things. The mission of Jesus, for example. You remember in Matthew, when Jesus began to explain to the twelve that He was going to have to go to Jerusalem and He was going to be put to death. And He said on the third day He would arise from the dead. And you remember, Peter took Him aside and it says He rebuked Him and said, Never, Lord. Do you think that Peter understood the mission of Christ? Do you think that Peter understood that if Jesus didn't die as a sacrifice for the sins of humanity, then humanity would die in their sins? More specifically, do you think Peter understood that if Jesus didn't die, that he, Peter, would die sinful, and he would never have an eternal relation with his beloved Lord? It's clear he didn't understand. Look at their understanding of the kingdom. <clears throat> Three examples in Mark. They argued on the road. Who was going to be the greatest? And later two of them came and asked for the favored seats in the new regime at the left and the right hand of Christ. I want to go to the third. Jesus has been crucified. He is resurrected. And for 40 days, we just read, He walked on the earth as a proof of His resurrection. This question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is all that we need to know about their understanding of the kingdom. You see, for 1,500 years, the Jews had been looking for the Messiah. And they didn't expect Him to be God in the flesh. They expect Him to be a deliverer, God sent, God empowered, like Moses. And what He would do would be deliver the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel, out from under Roman bondage. And they would assume their rightful position among other nations of the world. This is what the Jews looked for. And the apostles were part of that 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 society. And this was their understanding as well, quite clearly. They argued about places, about position, about offices. And now they ask, as Jesus is about to ascend, and they'll never see Him again in the flesh, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They didn't understand that it was a spiritual kingdom for all of mankind. Jesus was the, was the exclusive deliverer. This is what they thought. He was to be the exclusive deliverer of the Israelite nation. Let's look at their faith. There are a number of places we could look uh, when Peter walked on the water, but I'll, I'll look at a couple of them in the interest of time. <clears throat> they were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And a storm came up. And the waves were coming over the sides of the boat and over the bow, and it was beginning to fill up with water. And they became afraid that they would drown, that the boat would be swamped. And they looked around, and Jesus was asleep, it says, in the back of the boat. So they went to the stern, and they shook Him awake, and they said, Lord, save us! And look at what Jesus says to them. 
He says, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he rebuked the winds and the waves and it became perfectly calm. And the apostles asked, what kind of man is this? The winds and the waves obeying? Do you think that they realized that they were in the boat with the almighty creator of the entire universe? That the creator of, of a hundred billion galaxies on average consists of a hundred billion stars? This earth is one little speck in his creation and they're amazed that he can control the wind on a little puny lake in Israel? Do you think they realized who they were with? And had they realized who were they were with, then would they have been afraid? Perhaps we shouldn't be too hard on them. How do we react today when we face death? Are we afraid? I see people clinging to life like somebody hanging on the side of a cliff with their fingernails. And I have to wonder, will I do that when my time comes? And what does that say about the strength of our faith? Ye of little faith. He's talking to the apostles. Okay, I'm in trouble now. What did I do? Okay. <clears throat> there we go. In another example, the night of the Last Supper, Jesus came to them and he said, Tonight you will all fall away on account of me. And Jesus, Peter jumped up in his usual way and he says, If I have to die with you, I will not depart from you. And it says, all the other disciples said the same thing. And yet a few hours later, when the temple guard came and arrested Jesus, it says, they all fled. And you have to wonder, you know, it's easy to proclaim faith when you're not threatened. What will I be like when my time comes, when I'm threatened with death? A harm? Will my faith save me? <clears throat> Look at their fear in the face of the Jews. This was just after the crucifixion. And it says, the act says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together in the upper room, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. And we have to understand when this is happening. Again, after the ascension, 40 days later, Jesus was taken up and they returned to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room, and I would add, and locked the door. Now it's 50 days from Pentecost back to the Passover, and Acts told us that Jesus walked on the earth after his resurrection for 40 days. So this occurs 10 days before Pentecost. Let's look what happens in that 10 days. 
<clears throat> on the morning of Pentecost, the apostles were in the upper room and they spilled out onto the street and they confronted the very crowd that had been clamoring for the crucifixion of their Lord and their Master. Jesus had gone. They had been afraid. But now suddenly, on the morning of Pentecost, they're different men. Peter gets up and he's with the eleven and he raises his voice and he's to the crowd and says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you with the help, and you with the help of wicked men put him to death, but God raised him from the dead. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Is this the same Peter that ran away when Jesus was arrested? The same Peter that denied Christ three times when he was being tried? How did he get all this bravery? Okay. They also confronted the leaders, not just the people. They had been brought in because they healed a man. I believe it was on the Sabbath. And Peter gets up and says to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for the act of kindness to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Of Nazareth. He's even twisting the knife a little bit. Nazareth, that little town up north on the other side of the tracks. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. It's nowhere. And it still is today. All of the elite lived in Jerusalem. That was the epicenter of Israel. But Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, this man is healed. Look at their sudden understanding and their focus. <clears throat> they teach. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers. He has fulfilled in us their children. Not by delivering Israel. But by raising up Jesus. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through Him Everyone who believes is justified. Jesus no longer is viewed as the exclusive deliverer of the nation of Israel. He didn't come to recreate a physical kingdom. He came to forgive the sins of all mankind and to create a spiritual kingdom. He's the deliverer of all men from their sins. This is a big change from where they were just 10 days earlier. One of the hardest things to do in life is to change your understanding, your worldview, the mental box that you're in. It's hard sometimes to even realize you're in a mental box. And overnight, these men have changed from a tradition that their people had had for some 
1,500 years, and suddenly Jesus is not their exclusive deliverer. He is the Messiah, the sacrifice for the sins of all humanity. How did they do this? Where did this infusion of raw courage come from? From where came this sudden understanding? How does one virtually overnight come to a totally different belief that just 10 days earlier had been so foreign to them, and now they have accepted Jesus as the Savior of all mankind, the exclusive, not the exclusive deliverer of Israel? How suddenly the willingness to die for a belief that had been totally foreign to them just 10 days earlier. How indeed, if not with the help of the Holy Spirit. Men just don't change like this, and these men do. And by the way, they were willing to die for this new understanding, to die willingly. I want to look at the the conversion of Saul of Tarsus real quickly. Saul, outside of Jesus, has probably had more influence on Western history than any other human. <clears throat> he is the uh, pivotal point in Christianity. It is through Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Christian, that we Gentiles were brought into the church. The fact of Saul's conversion is not debatable. Virtually everyone accepts the fact that Saul, the Jew, was converted into Paul, the Christian. How this conversion occurred, however, is debated. There are two fundamental questions we have to address when talking about the conversion of Saul, the militant Jew. First of all, why would Saul have ever converted to Christianity? And secondly, who could possibly have converted Saul? And as you will see, these are not easily answered questions if we don't accept Saul's own testimony. Let's look at his advancement in Judaism. He says he was born a Benjamite in Tarsus, a Greek city. He, uh, Benjamite the favored son of Abraham, one of the most favored tribes. He was raised in Jerusalem, the epicenter of his nation, of his religion. He studied under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the most highly thought of scholars and teachers of that generation. To study under Gamaliel would be like being under the private tutorage of the chief justice of our Supreme Court. Gamaliel not only was on the, the council that ruled secular Judaism, but he was also a religious leader. So that's really more than the chief justice. Saul was a given privileges that very, very few of his contemporaries ever dreamed of. In regard to the law, he was a Pharisee, that sect of Jews that is fastidious about keeping the law. In regard to legal righteousness, he tells us he was faultless. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. Dedicated to the Jewish religion. Consider his social standing. He knew and was known by the members of the Sanhedrin. 
the ruling body of the Jewish nation. He knew them personally, and they knew him. He was given a great mission of national importance. Okay. He was regarded by himself and by others as the defender of the faith, the faith of his forefathers that they had had for some 1,500 years. He thought he was acting on behalf of God. He was empowered by the national leadership, and he was respected not only by the leaders, but also by the common people. He was something of a national hero. Saul, the militant Jew. So look at uh, what happened to Saul after his conversion. Paul the Christian. He was pulled down and rejected by his own people. He was beaten, I'm sorry, beaten with 40 lashes five times, he tells us. Beaten with rods three times. Stoned and left for dead. Run out of numerous cities by his own people. Shipwrecked three times. Stripped naked. Went cold and hungry. And on top of all of this, daily he faced trouble in the churches for which he had given up everything that men scratch and fight and climb over each other to achieve that Saul the Jew had. He gave it all up and even more so suffered miserably for the churches. And daily he faced trouble in churches. And finally, if this thing will behave, he was executed and died horribly. And so we ask the question, What man in his right mind would give up Saul of Tarsus, who had everything men strive for, and become Paul the Christian, who was rejected and beaten, dishonored? Who would do that unless something happened? The next question, of course, is who could have converted Saul? Well, let's look at his attitude toward Christians. He believed that this movement, begun by a band of uncultured, unwashed, uneducated Galileans, was an abomination to Jehovah God. God had chosen the Hebrew people some 1,500 years earlier, and this covenant with God, this arrangement between the Hebrew people, and God was being threatened by this new sect. Saul felt God sent in his persecution of the faith. And he was defending the faith of his fathers. Acts tells us that when they dragged Stephen out of the city and they began to stone him, the witnesses, those who were throwing the stones, threw their coats down at the feet of a young man named Saul, and Saul was there giving his approval to Stephen's death. He tells Agrippa, I thought I was convinced I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus. I ought to. Ought to. A lot of people like to say God, Paul was guilty, felt guilty. He didn't. He was doing the work of God, and he felt like he ought to. Acts tells us Saul began to destroy the church. And then he tells us, 
I tried to force them to blaspheme. Not only did he vote for their death, but he tried to get them to blaspheme. Saul, the militant Jew, wasn't satisfied with the death of Christians. He wanted Christians to lose their soul. This man was evil. And so the question is, who could have converted him? Well, there are only three groups, Jews, Romans, and the disciples of Christ. Real quickly, the Jews, of course, he was one of them. He was doing their bidding. He was defending their faith that he was sent on this mission by their leaders. The Jews would have not wanted to convert Saul to Paul the Christian. In fact, they felt rejected when, when Saul converted. And that's one of the reasons he was persecuted so much. How about the Romans? Well, the Romans understood what the, what the Messiah was going to be, just like everybody else. He was going to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel. He was going to throw off the Roman bondage. And when he did that, there would obviously be an uprising against the empire. The Romans did not want somebody professing to be a teacher of a Messiah, especially one who could be raised from the dead. So how about the disciples of Christ? Well, Saul hated them. With all of his prestigious training and rapid rise in Jerusalem, he regarded them as ignorant and unwashed and uncultured. <clears throat> what chance would a Christian have of even approaching Saul? And to help you appreciate this, I want you to think about for a moment a modern-day persecutor. In the closing days of World War I, there was a young German private who was recovering from his, corporal, I'm sorry, he was recovering from his wounds. He had been a messenger jumping from trench to trench to carry messages, and he a very dangerous job. So he was laying in the hospital recovering. They expected any moment that the Germans would achieve victory, but instead came the unthinkable. The news that the German army had collapsed and total defeat. And this young corporal, dedicated, swore to dedicate the rest of his life to avenging this affront to the great German nation. And so in the 1930s, Adolf Hitler came to power. There had to be an explanation for the defeat, and there was one ready-made. It was the Jews. They were clannish. They excluded others. They were elitists. They were usually rich, bankers and so forth. They were resented. And so Hitler began to tell that it was the Jews that had caused the collapse of the German army. They had given secrets and plans over to the Allies. Of course, this wasn't true. A lot of Jews received the Iron Cross for their service during World War I. But that didn't matter to Hitler. So I want you to think about this for a moment. Let's look at a picture. Adolf Hitler and his staff have come to a Jewish concentration camp to inspect it. And there he is standing with his little high bill cap and his parade baton, starched, stiff. And over here is a line of the most miserable humans you've ever seen. Literally skin and bones, starving, half-naked, head-shaven because of lice, dirty, filthy, and stinking. And they're slowly trudging to the gas chamber to be put to death. When suddenly, 
A little bespectacled Jew breaks out of line and before anybody can do anything, he runs up to Adolf Hitler and says, Mr. Hitler, I'd like to talk to you about converting to Judaism. What do you think? If you were a betting man, would you put any money on the little Jew? But I want you to think about this. In no way did Adolf Hitler think he was doing the will of God. He knew he was using Jews as a scapegoat. He just hated them. Let's go back to the first century. Saul of Tarsus hated Christians every bit as much as Adolf Hitler hated Jews. But in addition to that, Saul of Tarsus believed that he, with all of his might, he believed that he was doing the will of God. Adolf Hitler knew he was not doing that. And so I ask you, what chance would a first century Christian have of even approaching Saul of Tarsus? Something to think about. <clears throat> Saul says, how did he get converted? Well, he says, about noon, O king Agrippa, I was on the road and I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. Remember that. We all fell to the ground. This is not a singular event for one person. The whole group fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then I asked, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice. Notice carefully, it doesn't say they didn't hear the voice. They did not understand the voice. A lot of times I hear my wife, but I don't always understand her. The point is, this happened to more than just Saul of Tarsus. It happened to the soldiers who were with him. So Paul himself tells us that he was converted by none other than Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ had long since died on the cross. So you see, if Saul of Tarsus was converted by Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ had been resurrected. This is a problem for a lot of people, and I, I don't have time to go on into it, but it's claimed that Saul of Tarsus possibly had an epileptic fit. And I would ask you, did all of the soldiers with him also have an epileptic fit simultaneously? There are other explanations like this, and they simply don't fit. The effect of the resurrection on the apostles and on Saul of Tarsus and on the hundreds of disciples simply cannot be denied. Their lives demonstrate a faith and a trust, a deep-seated hope that all of the inhumanity that the Roman world could muster could not dim. They went to their death willingly. Some of them stood in the Colosseum. And they came up while they were tied to the stake with kindling around their feet. And they were given the opportunity to deny Christ and live. And they willingly died rather than deny Christ. Men do not suffer such misery for a hoax. And many of these people, 
as we saw, had known Christ when he was here. They were certainly in a position to know if it was a hoax or not. And the question this morning is, what does this mean to you and me? And what it means is, <clears throat> is the resurrection happened. And because the resurrection happened, we can know that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God. And that His sacrifice indeed washes away sin. What it means is that we can have a hope in this life and a life to come. And this morning, if you don't have that hope, you can do something about it now by meeting the conditions of the new covenant that God has made, not exclusively with the Israelite people, but with all mankind. By coming forward and confessing your belief in Christ as Lord and Savior and being baptized to walk in a new life of hope as we sing the song.